Welcome to the Adventures in Awareness podcast, where in partnership with the Psychedelic Society, we're conducting a series of discussions on psychedelics, meditation and enlightenment. I'm very happy to have with us here today, cultural change maker, cooperative technologist and founder of the Psychedelic Society, Stephen Reed. Stephen completed a master's in complexity science at the University of Bristol, as well as a master's in physics, specializing in quantum field theory at the University of Oxford. As if that wasn't enough, he was also the youngest ever board member of Greenpeace UK and selected as the Green Party parliamentary candidate for Totnes. As well as quantum field theory and complexity science, Stephen has training in software development, meditation, plant medicine and political activism. So welcome, Stephen. Hello. I feel you bring quite a unique perspective by combining experience in quantum physics, meditation and psychedelic explorations. So I'm thinking it could be a great way to start to give people a sense of your story and how you ended up combining all three and having an interest in mystical experiences. Yes, I, I, I guess I'd actually had at least a couple of um, what I now consider to be mystical type experiences even before I came to psychedelics. I didn't really understand them in those terms at that time. And when I was studying for my final year exams, degree in physics at Oxford, just as I was like revising the quantum field theory stuff and like just sort of really cramming myself with it, I had this this strange sense of that I had kind of like reached the bottom of the stack. Because for context, like each year in a physics degree, you're taught you're taught a theory, but you're told this isn't the final theory because like you're going to learn a more complicated and kind of more deeper one next year and so on and so on and so on. But by the time I reached this final year, although although I wasn't studying like the full standard model, like in like you know, I was just my begin, beginning my studies in quantum field theory, really. I was at least studying like, kind of more, you know, the outline, the basics of what physicists consider to be like the fundamental, at least one of the two most fundamental theories in physics right now, along with general relativity, which is a quite different formalism. I had this feeling of, despite the fact I had kind of reached the ground in some sense, this feeling of groundlessness with a sense of, is this it? Is it is like is, is this what everyone goes on about? Because right. I had reached this, I had reached this apparently most fundamental level. Yet I could see that I was still experiencing symbols in awareness, symbols in consciousness, if you like. And it was a kind of you know, it was like a more complicated and potentially more interesting and more use, useful in some sense set of symbols and the symbols that I've been studying years previous. Mm -hmm. But this thing was still happening in my own consciousness and was and it to, and to some extent is you could say it's it's a shared construct of consciousness between the other humans that had collectively co-created this thing but it was initially quite intense and then i went round feeling a little bit like i was kind of dreaming or in a strange like i was kind of somehow floating for the next couple of weeks with this sense of like of, of lightness in in my body wow and with feeling like i got this kind of like i got a, like got the joke the cosmic joke is like physics is apparently this like very serious thing but actually when you come down to it it's just a set of ultimately it's just a kind of set of shared agreements by other right. um, conscious beings but that all that that process is is ultimately kind of happening in in consciousness and i guess although i didn't really hadn't really studied you know non-duality and consciousness at that point i had that had that kind of feeling of oh okay wow like it's it's consciousness that's perhaps more fundamental than any of this because that's what these that's what physics is happening in and and i remember you saying something along the lines of, like it almost felt like the ground like you're saying the ground falling away of you're reaching the edge of of human knowledge like there isn't another more sophisticated theory 
coming up the, the year after and, mm -hmm. and it still doesn't explain everything. Did that have something yeah. to do with it? Exactly, exactly. And then, and uh, subsequently, I became very fond of the work of David Bohm, who, who writes very eloquently on just, there is an assumption by many physicists, or at least many junior physicists, let's say, that like, that physics is, is finite, that it is in principle possible to find something like a final theory or a grand unified theory and so on. And he says, what, on what basis is, do we assume that this is the case? Is it not, you know, a, a, can we not equally, you know, entertain the possibility that physics itself is is infinite? That there is, there, there can be, there will be no like final theory, no endpoint to it. So it was feeling like, oh, well, this is not the end, and like how ridiculous for me to realise that like there could ever be <laughs> an end, given that that this is you know occurring in mind. Yeah. And just to contextualise this experience a little bit further. Was this partly a product, because I imagine there's many different motivations for studying physics uh, mm. to a very high level. So was part of it for you this hunger for the ultimate truth, which is in a way a spiritual endeavor in itself? Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah, that, I mean, that yeah. was a big motivation for studying physics and then for going like into the kind of deep theoretical side of things rather than staying involved in a more kind of like practical and experimental side. Yeah, I guess it was, yeah, it was, it was funny and it was, it was humbling, you know. I don't know the final answer. I think there, I don't think there is a final answer. <laughs> and, and just start, and that, maybe that was the beginning of me just getting used to that idea. You know, it was a switch from feeling like I, I want, I want that answer, that final answer to be stuck. Yeah. Okay, there isn't one. And like, how, how else, how am I going to change how I live my life and my desires yeah. in life? Like given that shift in perspective. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. I'm just curious now. Is this a common paradigm shift that happens in, in those circles where you know, people finally reach that level of theoretical physics and suddenly it was like you could speak to your tutor and like, oh, yes, I understand this. This is part of the path, as it were, of studying physics to this level. Or, or was it somewhat of an, an, did you have people you could speak to? Um, did your classmates resonate with what you were saying? Or was it just something you couldn't really mention given the culture of that environment? I think there's a real diversity of, of opinions and perspectives on this within physics. And it, it is it overlaps with one's broader spiritual beliefs and perspectives. I wouldn't say it's like it's it's by no means it's not like necessary to to kind of have the experience that like have to be a good physicist. Mm -hmm. That much is true. Like because the, the what distinguishes physical science from spirituality, if you like, and is that science is has has this is element at least a bit subjectively verifiable that you can conduct experiments and like you can you can still whether or not you kind of have these mystical spiritual type experiences in relation to physics and, I don't, and i'm not i'm not the only physicist or scientist that has experienced something like this but it, I, but but it doesn't seem like everyone does mm. and lots of you know those people are all often very good scientists in the sense yeah. of like they're still producing good theory that that matches with our experiments so yeah. um yeah it's, it's a quite mysterious phenomenon i guess but is it alienating or, or is there room for it in that culture because it's it's such an I've no, i know nothing about that culture like, um, could you go could you go and talk to your friends at the time around that or your tutors or, or yeah yeah i mean and yeah. it was uh, i mean particularly since the advent of well, even the kind of the earliest quantum theory in sort of the beginning of the 20th century, physicists kind of started getting used to the idea that they were, they had to also be philosophers in, mm -hmm. in some sense. And, and of course, and actually, I mean, that's, even maybe that's like not looking back far enough. You could say like, yeah, anyone working at whatever, whatever at that time, at the time is considered to be like fundamental physics, even 
which at some point was was Newton, even though we consider Newtonian physics to be like pretty basic stuff nowadays. Like Newton was thinking about God and like what does this what does it say about God and you know the universe and so on. And yeah. uh, nowadays we wouldn't think that Newtonian physics has very much to say about God at all. But uh, <laughs> but, but, he, but he did back then. And, and nowadays, like the equivalent is you know what does quantum physics have to say about consciousness? And maybe in a hundred years from now we'll say like it, what what a, ridiculous, much. what a yeah. ridiculous idea that quantum physics had anything to do with consciousness because yeah, interesting, you know, yeah. both both of those fields develop and then in time we sort of we we see that maybe they're not as as fundamental as we we once thought they were and then they kind of act out as the as the most useful metaphors for our understanding of consciousness or god yeah. or, or whatever yeah, i mean all, yeah. but i guess the reason why that we relate we relate them at any point in time is because like they're just that they're, they're things at the limit like consciousness is kind of by definition that which is always at the limit of our understanding in some sense i would say yeah. um and then so, and then at any point in time there there exists a scientific theory or physical theories that are also at the limit and so like we join these things together because then you know we think mm -hmm. they're both at the limit so they must have some relationship but that, yeah. that may or may not be true yeah, <laughs> as those true. limits change so just chart for me the path then from this experience or this kind of shift in your paradigm so that so physics maybe no longer holds the promise of providing an end answer an end point and maybe there isn't even even an end point uh the path from that into psychedelics and meditation did one come before the other were they initially linked in any way as a kind of bridge if you like was all my, were my studies in complexity sciences which is still science but like really emphasizing self-organization and emergence and lots of studies of, of biological phenomena and you know living systems a, a cell or a human being um has a quite different quality to it than like billiard balls like kind of knocking around sort of in, in predictable ways on a on a table and that along with my my readings of particularly of david bohm i mentioned already like were my kind of bridge from this quite kind of mechanical and structured and ordered notions of physics and of by extension kind of of the world or at least my desire for those things to something a kind of more messy and and more complex um shifting from com complicated to complex and maybe initially finding that quite uncomfortable but becoming more comfortable with it over time as i kind of read more and perspective adjusted a bit and uh yeah my first psychedelic experience in 2012 it was uh, yeah, it was a kind of mystical, spiritual type experience. I had this this real sense of cosmic connectedness that I suppose I I wondered for some time what what is the point of the universe being so big, or is there a point to the universe being so big? And um, that first trip, I, I, yeah, I I had this sense that you know I I in some sense I I, I was those stars and I was those faraway planets, mm -hmm. and through through mind I could even like journey to them or get some taste of 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 them of what it might be like to to be that star or that planet or mm -hmm. uh, it's quite difficult to articulate clearly but it yeah that inspired a fascination with with these substances for the kind of the strange and wonderful shifts in perspective they can bring about and i found my previous studies in physics and particularly uh, readings of bohm incredibly useful in kind of scaffolding my experience Bohm's like emphasis on the on the unity and interconnectedness of all things and the, what he calls the implicate order that there is like a kind of 
a hidden unifying order behind the apparent separateness of phenomena that we experience in everyday reality and um, yeah, I feel really grateful that I came to psychedelics a little bit later in life in that sense and had something mm -hmm. to, to, to build those experiences on or to, have to put them in context in some way. It's super interesting because I, I am speaking to some people who do regret starting them so young, maybe 14, 15 and, and spinning out and it being perhaps a little uh, very entertaining and, and mind opening, but at the same time causing a little bit of suffering and Roland in his research talks about the usefulness of having some kind of context so it's interesting that the context that you were given came from the physics world rather than necessarily what I think a lot of people assume to be the useful context uh, in these circles which would be more you know the spiritual Taoist mm -hmm. Buddhist teachings well in, well indeed and that's the next step really because that and, but then it didn't take me long to kind of move more into that that world uh -huh. yeah yeah and were you initially taking psychedelics as like a curiosity, like someone might try their first drink of alcohol or something? Or, or was it because you'd heard, all right, maybe there isn't the, the final answer in physics, but I, I'm still curious, does it exist? Or, or how am I now living without even that um, search anymore? It, no, I didn't. Um, more just the curiosity of, about psychoactive substances in general and just, mm -hmm. and just becoming, wow, like I didn't realize... I'd only just realized like that it was possible to kind of alter my consciousness in so many uh -huh. kind of different and quite interesting ways in the sort of year to 18 months previous to the first psychedelic experience. So like psychedelics were just like, okay, like let's see how this class of substance alters my neurochemistry and, you know, like perceptual apparatus. And mm -hmm. it's, yeah. And the, and the way that it did was, was much more profound than any other psychoactive mm -hmm. uh, shift that I'd experienced previous. I remember hearing quite recently that, it's fairly common um, for many Buddhist monks, contrary to what probably most people believe, to not have a meditation practice, that it's still, even in Buddhist circles, a relatively esoteric thing to have a daily meditation practice, to sit there in silence. And, and so that's something that you're de doing now, as I understand. You've got a mm -hmm. relatively serious practice. And um, if I remember right, you've also been on these retreats where you do like 10 days, uh, silent retreats with many hours each day. Is there a link between the psychedelics and the meditation, as you mentioned? Or Yeah, after my first psychedelic experiences, I kind of went back to, to the writings of David Bohm and, and then became interested in the fact that he had had a dialogue with Krishnamurti, who's a sort of Indian spiritual teacher, let's say, from mm -hmm. who was teaching mostly, I think, in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Uh, that was really interesting. That was like, oh, wow, like, well, this quite serious physicist who incidentally was, was seen like as a bit out there by other physicists, but you know, won some really important prizes in physics was also very, very respected. It's like, well, this, if this serious physicist is talking to this spiritual teacher, like, you know, maybe, maybe there's something in this whole spirituality thing. And, um, so I, yeah, having always just written off religion and spirituality as a kind of like slightly childish and facile thing and a bit of like a crux for people, you know, kind of psychological crux of people that maybe <laughs> quite growing up properly i, I okay I'm, I'm really let's maybe let's check this out again let's yeah. let's, re, let's revisit this conjuring or the thought which i guess have been present with me all the time to some extent like well you know maybe there's a reason why these things have persisted for thousands of years these stories above all stories have persisted for thousands of years yeah beyond beyond them simply being kind of like comforting and i I became at some point, I think I was actually in a, it was in a bookshop in Mendocino in California on the West coast of the United States. I, I picked up a copy of the Tao Te Ching and just blew my mind. Yeah. Wow. 
and it just resonated so strongly well but well both with well certainly my the, my studies in complexity science yeah sort of and um, but but also my psychedelic experiences of just emphasizing unity and interconnectedness and and, and flow and uh, the unity of opposites it was yeah it can, in in a such a beautiful and poetic way and so that's that's really if there's one tradition that i kind of you know really sort of resonate with still above it others it is Taoism yeah mm -hmm. the and the, so the meditation came in even after that actually it was like in the context of becoming a, of, of reading more about Taoism and also Buddhism particularly Zen Buddhism there's a great book called Zigzag Zen Buddhism and Psychedelics which had a big impact on me then I was like okay well maybe I'll give this meditation thing a go <laughs> to, um, people seem people seem to be pretty into it and I actually one of my er earliest experiences was to go on a vipassana i really threw myself in at the oh end, you which, dove right in okay. which, I, which i which i really do not recommend <laughs> i mean i i had the best of intentions i, I had the, i had the intention that i would having booked the vipassana site six months out i would use those six months to develop that regular practice it didn't happen <laughs> right. I, I, I ended up i ended up going into it with like really you know very regular daily practice still and it was incredibly challenging and mm. yeah um, mainly on my body actually is yeah. and and actually and the subsequently i realized that uh, or you know <laughs> read and understood this is this is how yoga and meditation are Right. like in a big <laughs> in a big way like the the yoga and in a big way for, for many yogis like yoga was just like the, the necessary work you had to do yeah. so so that you could sit in meditation <laughs> for hours at time. you know I, I i understand that a bit better now and like that's one one more motivation for sort of people yeah. yoga or another and being you know in my body but anyway subsequent to that you know at least after like maybe after a month of kind of just feeling mildly traumatized and like i did actually start uh, developing that regular meditation practice and now i pretty consistently meditate for between half an hour and 45 minutes each day in the morning yeah. i feel like it's useful just to draw out a couple of things that you've said that i think are, are fair warnings one is you mentioned being grateful that you came to psychedelics later in life so mm -hmm. i was thinking oh that might be, might be useful to just come back to that is there any particular reason is it something that i know you've been a big advocate for psychedelics but would you necessarily if you had a 14 year old or 15 year old niece or nephew or, or son mm -hmm. or daughter interested what what's the right age from your perspective to the right age is different it's it's more about development right and you yeah. can um than age i would say to the extent that that's a cop out and you can say well let's take kind of the development of the average human being whatever that means yeah. in like in the west or in the uk then i would have thought waiting at least waiting to age 18 is is totally reasonable um, well, and well, in what I, respect had you developed you regret that you took it then rather than five years or or three years before some kind of other important and ways of understanding reality more than that it's the ability to inquire mm -hmm. because psychedelics you know with this notion of them being non-specific amplifiers they can just draw uh, out that term for us for a second so this is this was used by stan graf that said that one of the, the the key features of psychedelics is that they um they're not kind of inherently good or inherently bad or, in, or that that they they will amplify they will intensify the context in which they're taken uh-huh yeah and this can often be like a very useful property 
Um, however, if you're not aware of this property, and furthermore, if you don't have the ability to, if you don't have, if you haven't developed the tools of inquiry and, and deconstruction and questioning to a sufficient degree, they can like send people off feeling like very sure of themselves or very sure that like this is how the universe is or this is how I should live my life mm-hmm. without having that ability to, to question and say, well, to what extent is this simply a product of the, of my psychedelic experience and how, and what other ways could I see this? Mm-hmm. And so actually more, more than simply the kind of knowledge of physics and physical theories that I developed, I, it was actually more the ways in which I, I'd, le- I'd, I'd learned to inquire, I'd learned to ask questions and I'd learned to be skeptical to, to some, uh-huh. to some sense. And the confidence to, to question is very useful in the context of, of psychedelics. This gets said to people very often when, in the context of sort of organized psychedelic ceremonies and retreats, you might in the trip, you might, you know, come up with a seemingly great idea that you should, you know, quit your job and like go and live around the other side of the world or ditch your boyfriend or whatever it might be. It's like, and you always get told, just it might be a great idea, but but give it a week, <laughs> you know, just like <laughs> just 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 pause slightly and make sure you are seeing that idea in the context of, of all this yeah. so yeah that's that's the kind of point you want someone to have reached the, the ability to just to slow down and to just question before yeah. like rushing into any particular um, decision or becoming overly convinced of yeah any aspect of the reality of their trip it might be a great idea and and their insights might be totally spot on you know but yeah. it's just like just slow and that's why meditation comes in as well you know because it, it maybe encourages that that slowness and that and that questioning in a way mm-hmm. the ability to question the kind of sense of conviction or certainty which is another thing that can come and go yeah mm-hmm. to see how it any sense of certainty or decision integrates with other aspects that might not be under consideration at that moment. Okay, that's really that's really useful. And and maybe I'll just add with the Vipassana story. I, I also dove straight into the Vipassana thing, felt mildly or even a bit more traumatized. I think it was counterproductive and also exasperated. I was encouraged to sit still in a certain posture and uh, I think I exasperated an injury that really still hasn't gone away several years later. Mm-hmm. So I know many people have benefited uh, a lot from diving straight in, but also, I think it's worthwhile knowing that that can happen and just to have a bit of caution coming into any of these powerful practices, whether it's meditation or psychedelics. So yeah, circling back around, you're now meditating. You're still engaged in various psychedelic uh, experiences. How do, you, how do you feel those relate for you now? And do they feel like separate paths or separate endeavors? Or do you sometimes combine them? Have you discovered anything that you feel like it's worth sharing or noticing? Yeah. I don't follow one particular meditation teacher or path as a devotee. Let's say like I, I jump around quite a lot on a time frame of like a few months, like I'll stick to one practice for a few months and be like, okay, I kind of, I've got what I want from that for the time being and then try mm-hmm. something else. So the one I'm currently engaging, I'm actually going back to the beginning myself right now and, and meditating chapter by chapter on the Tao Te Ching. I'm uncovering like a deeper layer of, of understanding and, and insight through just doing it in that slow way i mean it's short enough as you may know you can read it in a day but what you get from reading it in a day is quite different to reading it in 81 days and previous to that i was uh, i followed the meditations in the book seeing the freeze by robert bear which i think you at least have and maybe if you've read or read some of yeah, them out. i've read large um, chunks of it and also highly yeah. recommend it's great some of the practices i've 
probably kind of come back to most consistently is the work of Reggie Ray and his like, somatic meditations and really being with the body and just saying well, you know, what is actually happening in the body right now and quite different to the to the emptiness meditations actually which are kind of you know explicitly analytical at times and say like you know it's fun which is which that was interesting for me because it's like a lot of mindfulness meditation at least is about you know just like clearing the mind and like you know just if a thought comes let it go whereas like some of rob's work is saying you know, there's you know there's a place for analysis in meditation and like you can you can activate your brain and you can at least if you're activating it in the right way and kind of using it in a very in that kind of focused sense you may well reach some important kind of meditative realizations mm-hmm. um and I mean, he also says that's not the only way of like getting to that point, and it's there. There is a way of having a kind of a, a more clear and direct way of, of getting to those places. But I found that very interesting because mm-hmm. someone that clearly, I mean, he's actually recently passed away, as you may know. So someone who was, you know, really greatly respected in in the kind of meditation community, taught guy house for many years to mm-hmm. to just say this is yeah, this is you know an analysis and the thinking mind actually can have a role in mm-hmm. in in meditation i found one of the most striking aspects of that book so and how does this all interact with my psychedelic experiences psychedelic trips can can feel to me and i think to to others like that's why that word is used trip you know like but maybe it like you know like i'm on a boat let's say and and sometimes the water's calm and other times it's really fucking stormy and there's you know like you're getting water in your face and you just need to really like hold on to something and the probably it's probably in those periods that that the meditation meditative practice comes in most useful of when the psychedelic trip is becoming very turbulent they offer me some ways of staying focused and staying grounded whether that's through meditations on the impermanence of phenomena of 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 the emptiness of all things whether it's particular verses from the Tao Te Ching or whether it's say meditating on and with the body and just saying, okay, what's actually happening right now? Okay. I'm with my breath and I'm with my heartbeat and I'm with the sensations in various parts of my body. Like, so yeah, it could be, you know, it could be any and all of those that I might come back to in, in those more intense moments of a psychedelic trip. And, and whether you have turbulent parts of a psychedelic trip or even just an entirely turbulent psychedelic trip is to some extent you might even say to a great extent like outside of your control <laughs> um, you can you can do certain you can know you can pay attention to your set mindset and, and, and setting like physical setting coming into the trip but even if you do that it's quite possible that you know for whatever reason it's like you have a really challenging time and that's why it makes a lot of sense for anyone to develop some experience with these meditative practices before they go into so have these psychedelic experiences and do you take psychedelics now and obviously someone might take psychedelics one day for one reason you know one day i'm eating for nutrition another day i'm eating for pleasure and you know just normal food i mean but as a component of any psychedelic experience you have have a kind of and spiritual might not be the best word but any kind of um, ambition or curiosity or interest in these in the direction of having insights or realizations that are talked about in these various traditions i'm very fond of this quote from senyu suzuki roshi that's in the book zigzag zen buddhism and psychedelics he said strictly speaking there is no such thing as an enlightened person there is only enlightened action mm-hmm. and that's that's always resonated with me and at the very least is the kind of in, in buddhism we might think of it as you know on one hand you have the three marks of existence and each of dukkha and nata and there's like various meditative practice you can you can you can use to kind of 
get a kind of deep insight into yeah. those three phenomena or indeed the kind of emptiness of, of all of them you might say but yeah but the and but and on the other side you have the brahm viharas you have all like sublime abodes qualities of love which are metta karuna mudita peka the loving kindness compassion empathic joy and equanimity which yeah. are and they're really quite different things you know but or, yeah. or, or at least it seems like that on one hand you have these like quite kind of like cosmic realizations yeah. about the world and on the other hand you have like you know like love people and you know so <laughs> be nice like, yeah be nice <laughs> like celebrate when they're when something good happens to them and so on and yeah. um i'd say they both seem very important to me and mm. and we might say i think it's possible to reach awakening or enlightenment through one or the other or both but I, I would but i would say i would really question or i'd be very curious um for, to hear someone kind of claiming a level of an enlightenment or awakening purely on the basis of one of those two things mm -hmm. i'm not saying i'm not saying who knows i'm not saying it's not possible or not yeah. valid entirely but i would be if someone's only behaving in very like loving compassionate ways well, it doesn't really seem to have like really questioned or really got anything of the kind of like these these deeper characteristics of reality and was saying you know and saying they've reached enlightenment i'd be like okay but you know but what about that, that deep level of inquiry and and the, and the more common one i think at least in like buddhist communities as far as i can tell is or pseudo buddhist communities is people uh, having kind of deeply inquired into those core uh aspects of reality of, of impermanence and of you know not self and so on and claiming a level of enlightenment but actually they're not very nice people <laughs> and, and 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 i don't you know and i don't feel maybe others don't feel the, the loving kindness and the compassion coming from them yeah and ha happily there seems to be a strong relationship between these two things for most people most of the time and as we we deepen our uh not interest in our practice in one then the kind of our our insight in the other kind of mm -hmm. grows in a relatively natural way and that's the kind of the magic in a way of yeah of, of practice yeah in your own path do you feel like psychedelics are more useful for one or meditation for the other are they both equally useful for both no i don't think like one is more useful for one or the other i think they can both be useful for both and i think it really i'd say that you know they're tools it's like it, they and it really depends on the context and like the intention of their use mm -hmm. like we can use it, it um th there's a bit you know the kind of trend right now in psychedelics at least is kind of psychedelic psychotherapy and using psychedelics more on that side of developing uh, well first releasing trauma and then you know developing that, that love and compassion and so on it, the emphasis on psychedelic retreats is is not just generally not so much on the kind of the insight side of things mm. i think that yeah. will, I, that was the original focus of the psychedelic society psychedelic experience retreats we said i think we might even oh, still wow. say like they're they're designed for people interested in exploring the nature of reality in the mind we didn't we never said these are retreats for people that kind of have a you know suffering wanna, and yeah, yeah suffering and want to come to terms with and move beyond and integrate past trauma yeah it kind of but it moved in that direction because that's what was everyone was hearing about and that's the kind of people that are applying to come on the retreats and so yeah. and that's indeed why they're kind of actually separating to become a new organization in some ways so so that we can really make that focus clear i guess i think they psychedelics can absolutely be used to obtain deep insight into the fundamental characteristics of of reality it isn't they're not just kind of therapeutic 
tools. And then of course you can quit, you know, again, often those things are, are linked. And similarly with meditation, like it's, you can kind of explicitly be meditating on concept, on loving kindness and compassion and so on. Or you can might choose to never do that and purely be focusing on insight and, and non-dual practices. Mm-hmm. And that is the choice of, of each individual. Like how, how are you spending your time? But it's it seems important for people to... Yeah, I guess this is why I've been happy to do this conversation because I anticipate yeah. we would get to something like this. It feels like an important perspective to get out there. Well, the agency of, of, that we each have in deciding what these practices and what these tools are for and what i mean what ways we want them to develop us or help us develop i think it's healthy to maintain a, a constant curiosity and like yeah i mean what ways do i feel like i've i've got somewhere and i have developed and in maybe in what ways do i have some work to do and then we might find that okay maybe it's time that i put down my uh, my emptiness meditation practice for some time and pick up <laughs> maybe start doing one that's a bit more focused on the kind of loving kindness side of things or similarly with psychedelics maybe it's time that like i stop having like super high dose like cosmic far out experiences of the unity of all things and focus on slightly more manageable doses with maybe like longer lasting substances where i actually have the chance to kind of go back into more personal material and and develop in that way and 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 actually in psychedelics one of the choices there is actually what psychedelic substance to to use like you have things like dmt and 5-meo-dmt which are extremely short acting and i mean people often take high doses such that they are instantly experiencing like totally otherworldly phenomena in case of 5-meo-dmt very often having this kind of instant and profound experience of like of unity and a kind of like original kind of pure white light of you know the ground of being and that's that's very very different to like a 12-hour you know lsd trip sitting on a therapist's couch where you might have you might at times be experiencing that kind of unity of all things but very probably you will also encounter more personal material and i think they can they can both be useful it's not it's yeah. not to say what well, one is the right way of doing things and psychedelics should only be used for these like super direct cosmic experiences and yeah um, it really depends like yeah where we are and what we want i'm aware as well how meditation has come to the west and and its original context is a kind of spiritual um path and, and a way of unifying oneself with god or cosmic consciousness or seeing deep into the nature of reality or you know eliminating all kinds of suffering uh, to the point that you know, rebirth no longer happens and all these really cosmic claims. And, and for the most part now in the West is being used or coming to the mainstream as a way of enhancing performance or reducing stress and, and maybe becoming part, I think, even in the NHS as, as uh, t- therapeutic tools for people who are suffering psychologically. And, um, and similarly, what I see with psychedelics is, yeah, the mystical experience is seen as valuable to the extent that it helps someone overcome trauma or addiction and not for its own sake. And, mm-hmm. and of course, these are wonderful things, but at the same time, I'd love to create more spaces where also for people who aren't necessarily suffering, of course, I want uh, people to be suffering less, but also even if someone isn't going through great suffering in this moment, that there is something to be discovered here and something to investigate. Mm-hmm. And I asked you, oh, do you believe that ongoing shifts in perception are possible for people? And you said through psychedelics and meditation, that is possible. And I'm aware it can sound a little bit like boasting in some cases to say, I now experience life this way or whatever. But at the same time, I think it's really valuable just to, just for people to hear really specific examples of the kind of different ways life, life can move from one way of being experienced to another or, or perception of life can move from one 
several times and, and you know and and still one of the more profound and fun and, and interesting effects that i experienced during psychedelic trips is a sense of all, all things being in flow i mean this is a relatively common experience where it, it can seem like kind of everything is, is a fluid <laughs> it's like we, we're used to seeing you know rocks or something like very hard and static and and then kind of like you know gazing at, at, at rivers or streams and seeing them really move but in, in the psychedelic experience for me many times it's like i can see that sense of flow in all things including myself actually like seeing my face age like before my eyes is is an interesting effect of like gazing into the mirror sometimes on the during these experiences that experience of seeing all things in flow during the trip it that's something that seems to last weeks months maybe lifetimes after the experience obviously not such a an, an acute way of not really necessarily seeing something so acutely visual but there's that that feeling remains I had those kind of experiences like before being very familiar with the term Anicca and like, you know, ideas of impermanence in, in Buddhism and before realizing the, the real emphasis on the flow in, in Taoism. And that's why those two bodies of thought or wisdom kind of resonated with me so strongly. And then it translates into, into everyday life, right? Of, and it's, it's a phrase in common use, just Go, go with the flow, man. Yeah, it's, I think it's possible that kind of was even popularized during kind of like first psychedelic sort of revolution in the 60s and 70s. Through what I've just spoken about, you kind of, you, you see why maybe if, they, if there was a lot of LSD use and lots more people were kind of really seeing the fluidity of reality, that then that helps me to, to just encourages me to hold things a little bit more lightly in the same way that I don't think I can like catch water. <laughs> Yeah. or like or like pick up a stream yeah. it's like it, it encourages me not to hold on to anything you know too tightly it just it becomes just like meaningless or an impossible task in in, yeah. in the same way in some ways and allows me to kind of just live with a sense of lightness and and, and smile perhaps when i catch myself like trying to hold on to things that you know, on some deeper level now i know like cannot be held onto. I really like that because it does chime with a lot of spiritual teachings you hear, which is the cause of so much suffering is ignorance. And a lot of teachings talk about letting go and the virtue of letting go. But the teachings around, well, if you just see the ignorance, you'll let go automatically. Once someone understands, oh, I was trying to grasp water, you don't have to tell them to let go. You are letting go whether you like it or not. The water is not going to stay <laughs> very long in your hands. It's not that you let go, you give up the effort to not let go. Mm, and, exactly. and I'm tempted to project that the teachings of, of impermanence or flow were easier for you to incorporate because of your scientific training. And, and just correct me if I'm wrong, including the, this idea of emergence and complexity, but also you've spent more time thinking about the things around us that look solid. Mm -hmm. Perhaps at least you've got like an intellectual understanding how really, if we look a bit closer, they're not. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's um, there's actually a fantastic book by Fritjof Capra, The Tao of Physics, I think it's called, that had a big impact on me because it really, it, it pointed out the similarities between modern quantum physics, quantum field theory, and the kind of Taoist worldview. In the kind of quantum field theory worldview, all, all phenomena is seen as vibration, vibration in in fields that that permeate all of of time and space. Um, and in this sense, nothing is ever static. To be is to become. It's it's a you know, reality is a constant becoming and a constant mm -hmm. 
shifting and constant changing and that, that all things are in, in process and uh, and david bohm under underlines this nicely by saying that the, the most real the, the most real part of language is the present participle and he invites us to play a game where we we only speak in uh, in present participles hmm. um and alan watts has, does, he does something quite similar in some of his lectures but rather than saying like i you know i am a human we would say like there is humaning there is a, there's a there is a there is a process of of something yeah. becoming a human and you might say like, like it's a constant becoming in each moment like that that humaning is is renewed until it's not of course and you know then <laughs> um, when there's no more humaning there's there's decaying <laughs> there's I've, various points i kind of pl play with this this seeing uh, this way of, of, of seeing the world of, of thinking about everything in terms of these present participles in, in this process and so for, yeah, so for sure, there's there's an intimate relationship between you know, modern physics and these concepts of impermanence. Yeah. And would you say, in your case, that you're able to? Because I know for myself, I, I might learn some like very beautiful philosophies, and they're very inspiring. But then, when it comes to stubbing my toe or being annoyed with someone in my life or an aspect of work or something like this, sometimes they really do seem to help. But sometimes there's a gap between. Uh, this understanding and then being able to apply that to what I do when I do continue to just grasp onto concepts or ideas or defending something that is inherently in flow. I mean, yeah, for sure. Like it's, it's, it, well, let's say it like, let's say it like this. It's very rare that someone has one psychedelic experience or any other kind of experience that then like, it's, you know, switches them to a permanent state of, of compassion and understanding towards everyone that they meet and means that they, they no longer, you know, like, shout at their dog when it poops on the sofa or you know like get angry with someone when they kind of you know cut them up driving or whatever it might be it's it's an ongoing process as far as i uh understand to refresh and renew these these insights it, it, it isn't like a switch that's like once it's switched on you like it's like okay right i'm done i'm finished i'm always like that forevermore that isn't to say, however, that profound experiences cannot like produce like lasting results on the period of like weeks or months or maybe even years. And yeah, I think it's like it's a combination of, of doing the right practice and continuing to practice. Like what's what seems clear to me is that like if you're if, if you're doing the wrong practice, um, no matter how much you're you're doing it, you might never achieve that, <laughs> you know, that state of like compassion or calm or whatever it is that you're kind of aiming towards. On the kind of flip side of that, you know, maybe just because you did work hard for a period of time and had uh, some important experiences that did shift you to, you know, towards a, a more peaceful or kind state doesn't necessarily mean like you're, you're good and you're done now and now you don't need to practice anymore. Mm -hmm. um, most of the teachers that I've, I've had the pleasure to like meet and work with and I'm aware of, some people, they, I don't know whether they would claim to have a degree of enlightenment, but people around them might claim to say they have a degree of enlightenment. They're still practicing. You know, they're, 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 still, they're still sitting or they're still using psychedelics in a careful way or whatever it might be. The idea of, of practice is a really interesting one. And I certainly appreciate the kind of Zen take on it of the most important and most fundamental sense it's like there's nothing to get and thus like there's nothing to practice to get and 
can't you just see it? it's like right here on the face of it at least it's so such an antithesis towards kind of what, the, what is a current like quite popular like culture of personal development and doing the work that's a that's a key phrase in these times right you know you just need to do the work and like i you know, need to you know be in therapy for this many years and you need to like do your sit in meditation for this many hours a day and all this and i think and they're, i think they're both true and 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 that clearly in some ways they seem you know opposite and, and like when hitting upon paradox is often like a, i've learned that's like a that's generally quite a positive thing and like a tra- path to follow yeah yeah in in these spiritual circles or, or circles of meditators this kind of thing and these kind of phrase of you know be the change you want to see i see some people uh, including myself to a certain degree letting go a little bit of concerns around say activism and and i notice that so you talk about this perception of just noticing everything's in flow, everything's in change, you're kind of letting go. Um, but you continue to be quite involved in various degrees of activism, whether extinction rebellion or, or other elements. So that seems to be a line for you. It doesn't seem to be in any conflict. And I those experiences of flow or impermanence encourage in me the quality or, or virtue, if you like, in, in Buddhist language of equanimity. Yeah, this is this has been a bit of a journey for me to sort of to see to realize that that the equanimity of is a, is a subtle quality that and that there's a there's a big difference between cold indifference because everything's constantly changing and so what's the point of like doing anything i'm just going to sit here and just like watch the show and a kind of engaged neutrality or balanced engagement which mm. more and more what i saw and see is i think kind of what buddhist teachers are getting at when they when they speak about this being a a quality to be cultivated and the 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 wisdom of anicca is to is to enable us to 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 bear the suffering of the world but it doesn't mean we should just sit back and watch it like this it's it's still an invitation to to action and invitation to compassion to love in action uh, yeah i guess that's how that's how it fits with me it's like like the, the the wisdom of impermanence allows me to kind of just be with the the suffering and of the world and on, and on the flip side not to get too carried away in the, the kind of the high moments knowing that those two <laughs> won't last the, the being with it is almost is like a first step almost it's like you first have to really be able to be with the, the the fact for example of climate and ecological collapse and not look away because it's too scary which i think is a totally normal response it's like like you're telling me that like one billion people are going to be living in regions of the earth that are like just simply too hot for human habitation over the next 50 years it's like the instinct of that, that is just, be like, true. Yeah. I, like i don't, I'm not, I don't want to th- i'm not going to think about that as this life but to uh, to really like contemplate it and in the context of the inevitable death of all of those people anyway <laughs> for, yes. for example yeah. is or has been a first step for me towards then thinking okay what can i do about it is there anything i can do about this because i i desire to live a life free of suffering and to do what i can to relieve the suffering of, of others and certainly the climate and ecological crisis is something that none of us are going to be able to escape from in uh, in this lifetime and is calling us all to to action i'm struck as well how when you're talking about your your journey you talked about how initially going to oxford and studying physics it was 
driven to a certain extent by this thirst for truth, for like ultimate truth. And, and now I notice one thing you bring up a lot is, okay, well, how can we reduce suffering? And where's the compassion in this? And how are we treating each other? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I like to think it's both. And that furthermore, that they fit pretty well together, that the more clearly we can see reality and we get a sense of what, of of that that truth and i think it's like there's no end point it's just like well there's you go down layer by layer or um, you're just constantly taking one more step on the path like that for me and you know for for many other people comes with a, like a, a growing compassion and, and interest in that which is outside oneself you know it's that it's that and uh, that's maybe one way of talking about it is that the more we understand the the temporary and illusory nature of self and the ego the more natural it becomes to be to be interested in the well-being of not just myself but the well-being of others understanding that the two are not so different after all and that 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 separation is something which has been foisted on us in you know to uh, in various ways and to varying degrees starting with just probably the the kind of the animal instinct for survival of these these genes and this body and in a kind of more uh, modern way you might say like through neoliberal capitalism of you know really promoting the idea of you know, that you as an individual as a, as a consumer that um, needs to like wear the right clothes and you know go to the right bars or clubs or theaters and whatever and the, and have a, as many instagram followers as you can and so on and it's uh and it's curious like so I'm, I'm just i'm just thinking that of course i like i have a, a personal website that I, I actually put a lot of work into and, and a quite a strong kind of self narrative if you like and i'm wondering like you know is is to, to what extent is that inconsistent with you know what i just said about kind of having a loosening of this of this sense of self and or something that feels relevant and important is the way in which i've recently like stopped using facebook myself um i have this sense of in connection with like the my personal website and the content that i put out it's like i have more and more the sense of like i'm doing it for me and or like I, i'm doing it because it's something i love and i'm not and i'm not doing it I don't have like a like button or a share, <laughs> like a share right. count on my personal site. You know, it's like, right. particularly since actually moving to Devon, I've kind of really stopped caring about that kind of thing. This part of the story is entering the deeper relationship with the land and the sea here mm-hmm. came re- like came really at the same time of like losing this interest in, in social media. And this is a bit of a tangent, I know, but this is. Um, I think it's a great example. I mean, it's a big milestone for a lot of people to get off Facebook. But <laughs> I mean, that, like as ridiculous as that sounds, that's mm-hmm. a, kind of a huge step for, you know, I've kind of feel like something I've tried to get out of and then something pulls me back in and it might be work initially. And Yeah. And that, I think that, and just to try to relate it back to what we were talking about previously, it's, as I said, in, in this particular part of my journey, it's like, it's entering into deeper relationship with, with the land here in Devon that helps me feel more, yeah, part of the cycle of life and just being just being around more animals like the like the wild ponies on Dartmoor or the deer on the Dartington estate and kind of rabbits running around and you know pheasants flying across your, the road it's just not, none of which was you know I was experiencing on a daily basis in London like it makes it, ha- it, it has made social media just seem like a kind of slightly peculiar mm. 
it's like I, I feel like I'm in touch with something more fundamental and in in that context um kind of yeah like lost interest a little bit in exclusively human you know human games i mean i actually would be very curious to like understand more like read more of um, the evidence of the relationship between spiritual some of these spiritual practices meditation or, or use of psychedelics and social media use <laughs> i think <laughs> Um, it's not totally obvious to me what how that would what that would show at a kind of uh, population level. But anyway, that's a that's a, a future project. Well, it's a, I mean, there's a long tradition of mystics going out into the upper mountains and into forests, and so that link seems anecdotal, at least quite borne out. And I like your story about how you've you're still sharing, but you're sharing through your own website, and there's no longer the. I'm sure you could create it, but you're not tracking how many likes. I'm reminded how Glenn Gould noticed how his playing would subtly change. So he's kind of a very, for anyone who doesn't know, he's a very famous concert pianist who a lot of people admire. But he noticed his playing would subtly change when there was an audience. And he didn't like that playing as much as the playing he did for his own. So he eventually, towards the end of his life, stopped doing public performances altogether and just did recordings and would record them until they were what he believed they should be. And then they'd be released to the public and, and they're beautiful and amazing. And I noticed practicing myself, this is how ludicrous the human brain can be. But if I start to get quite, quite good, if even the thought comes into my mind of like, oh, this is gonna sound great when so-and-so hears it, mm. the playing gets worse, <laughs> just like immediately. It's that strange circle of, you're kind of just doing it for yourself, but potentially what it is is purer and you're sharing something more authentic. And you're kind of in that context saying, so yeah, I'm curious about the, well, a couple of things come to mind actually. The pros and cons that are the differences in meditating alone, practicing alone and independently versus being part of a, of a sangha, like a kind of spiritual community that might have like a very strong kind of collective practice and set times that you're meditating. Thinking actually of that, uh, when I say this, of, of Daniel Thorson, who's the the host of the Emerge podcast, really excellent podcast that's been going on for probably two or three years now. And he's currently living in a place called the Monastic Academy. Also kind of feels to me like therapy is becoming kind of normalized, kind of, you know, there's a shift of becoming just a positive thing to be engaging in. Whereas, you know, five or 10 years ago, it might have been, if you said you were in th having therapy, in therapy, you know, engaging in psychotherapy, people would have kind of been like, are you okay? It's not about like not being okay. No, it's just, you know, so it's a well-being practice that's and not, you know, not just for yourself, but for people around you. The flip side of that, I mean, again, this goes for both the meditation and the therapy, I guess. And it, and I think, and I think possibly it comes under the term of spiritual materialism. To what extent do I engage in meditation or therapy? to be able to simply say i'm engaging in meditation or therapy and to and to obtain the kind of right. as a way of see, seeking to obtain the kind of like respect of others versus it simply being something which i fundamentally feel is you know for my own good and well-being and like uh, something that i'm truly interested to kind of investigate or to to grow from yeah i, I you know I, I can't say though that those spiritual uh, materialist sort of aspects of my are, are, are totally you know absent for me like absolutely there's a sense in which like i meditate because uh and i or I engage in therapy because I, I think other people will like it and it will get me on a podcast or you know <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i'm only at the beginning of a quite an inquiry on that topic mm. uh, i'm particularly curious about in the context of therapy because of course therapy ain't cheap 
like at least at least with meditation kind of like anyone <laughs> with a, with enough determination kind of be sitting and then sort of saying honestly yeah i'd meditate for an hour a day whether that happens to be more for them you know for themselves or for the people that they're speaking to but but with therapy it's you actually need to have significant life financial means to kind of be engaging on that on a regular basis and and what what does it mean or what would it mean if that essentially becomes a like a pass into certain communities it's like you're not allowed you're not welcome in this community unless you're having therapy mm. but then some people simply can't afford to to, yeah. to be engaging in their practice yeah it's, it's beautiful to come into that already being aware of the shadow of it i notice in myself as well there was a period where I was meditating and then telling people and feeling some pride around it. But then I stopped telling people, but then there was pride around that. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure I'm going to escape pride, but I think the inquiry is probably useful either way. Mm. Yeah. I'd love to circle background because I'm, I'm aware that part of the motivation was this, was to be able to speak with someone who has a psychedelic practice, let's say, and can speak with and is willing to speak about it openly and, and kind of extinguish some of the taboos around just like, yes, I take psychedelics and I find them useful in my life. And you're mentioning how you, but you're having direct experiences of the impermanence and the flow of things where objects no longer looked stable or solid. And I'm very curious, you're mentioning how that persists at some level. What it's not is uh, like an acute visual phenomena, hmm. which, it, which it often is in the psychedelic experience. To, so to say it's lasting is something subtle and kind of in the, the background of my awareness rather than something which is like a, a, as like an ongoing sensory phenomena for me. Mm -hmm. You're not seeing the wall, wall move around, but there's a knowing that that is in fact what's behind the illusion of it being stable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's, that's closer to the mark. and curious how many that quite a common way people des describe their psychedelic trips is that it felt more real than everyday reality mm -hmm. it's, there's a big difference between the same like psychedelic and, and hallucinogen like the so hallucinogen like is you know really trying to suggest that any experience you have in the psychedelic state is a hallucination is then all the etymology of hallucination is but like you know what we would understand from that nowadays is that it's it's a fabrication it's you're it's taking it's taking you like away from reality away from truth and my experience and experience of many other people is that it's almost entirely the opposite which is why it's so peculiar that like the term psychedelic and hallucinogen were at least for a long time used as you know interchangeably that is much much less the case nowadays nowadays we really seem to be settling on the term psychedelic mm. um, or even entheogen which is another term that i really like we could re rename them hallucinogen dampeners or something <laughs> yeah 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 so i actually came up with a term which i tried to push at the beginning of the psychedelic society but never really caught on which is endosyndelic which the greek root of this would be revealing interconnection revealing interconnectedness which is i guess a, a, is distinct from what i was speaking about earlier and with regards to kind of impermanence and flow but feels also a is another kind of classic psychedelic experience phrase it, it's all one you know this is this is something which i've heard many a time in trip sitting and well and i've heard come out of my own mouth <laughs> in, those, in those peak moments and the rep a repeating sense for me on this is or, or everyday reality being something like um, like a, a painting on, on a canvas and what i'm experiencing most of the time is is the painting and i'm appreciating all the quality of the painting you know there's a 
you know there's a bright part there and there's a dark part there and um it's it's very colorful and very interesting but with psychedelics or high dose psychedelic experiences at least just having this like <gasps> oh my god like there's something deep in that this is kind of reality is is like kind of on something like there's a there's a canvas <laughs> but like below which or beyond which sense perceptions are are built on and various people find various different like names for that for that canvas or that or just that ex that experience that feeling uh, but it certainly chimes with the term Tao um, Lao Tzu he kind of even says it's like I don't know what it is and it's beyond words but I'm just going to call it Tao for the sake of writing like a, a <laughs> like a mystical book about it. <laughs> Yeah, that, that fundamental sense of, of, of unity and interconnectedness. And, and that, of course, happens at different, not least depending on the, the dose of the psychedelic, one can have kind of really tune into that sense of unity and interconnectedness at different levels. It can be important to realise in, in a kind of ecological sense, particularly if, if, with outdoor psychedelic experiences. People know nowadays of like the ideas of like the wood wide web and like there being like roots connected mycelial networks like under the forest floor perhaps even just like that notion of the leaves on the on the trees are like releasing the oxygen that i'm then taking into my lungs and then i'm releasing out the carbon dioxide which they're taking in and they're using for their met metabolic processes like we learn this in sort of gtsc biology but in psychedelic experiences can really like tune into that and be like wow or, like everything is so interdependent everything is like feeding and eating everything else in this in this perfect sense of balance that sense of interconnectedness at the level of ecology is no more or less important than that like kind of more that deeper more mystical sense of interconnectedness at the level of of Tao. Like I've, ad I've added one more along with that sense of like impermanence and, and flow there to relate about Buddhist philosophy again I would call that that it's like getting that embodied sense of anatta and that not self because I've been realizing that sense of unity and interconnectedness whether at the kind of ecological biological level or at the kind of more mystical level the sense of self starts to loosen or dissolve even you know at the biological level it's realizing that my, my body is a constant process of you know taking in oxygen and taking in food and maybe tuning into the fact that uh, or like as many bacterial cells like in and on your body as you have human cells that sense of one oneself actually being a, a multitude a community of, of so many different things and then at the level of a mystical or like interconnectedness and, and and unity it might actually be seeing one's own body kind of dissolve before them this is I and mean, this is where it gets almost impossible to to describe in in words but really feeling like a lo losing sense of the boundaries of one's own skin and merging into what might have previously seemed the kind of nothingness beyond but maybe now one senses is that fundamental base of of reality which which yeah can, is ex can be experienced in i have experienced in different ways at different times like sometimes being very rich and very full and at other times being something uh, like fundamentally like void and empty and with a certain like peace to it which again it can sound kind of like paradoxical but I'm yeah I'm, st I'm still working on that what the, the true that, that the kind of felt sense of the true nature of reality. How do you now decide which substances what doses is it based purely on on instinct or or have you learned some things about okay i want to have a bit more compassion or i want to remind myself of like the emptiness of all things or 
what's guiding your your practice and your explorations when i think about the classical psychedelics like the the, the biggest one of the biggest divisions is between dmt and 5-meo dmt and which are last 10 5 10 no more than 15 minutes uh, and like an extremely acute experience versus all the longer lasting psychedelics which can still be very very strong experiences but you can lose your sense of, of time in those but to the extent to which you do retain a sense of time or at least you kind of um you rediscover it upon coming back rather from the experience there's there's a big difference there 5-MeO DMT I think is, is would be particularly interesting to meditators as for me and for many other people it, is, it seems to offer without quite knowing how to put it into words like that uh, like a, a taste of something like very pure and direct and uh people often use terms like I, it was an experience of like pure void or pure light or pure emptiness in contrast to dmt or nndmt which almost always people say was extremely colorful and and weird and like i felt like i was seeing architecture and and you know like other beings and maybe having conversations with other beings or they were like kind of dancing with me or doing who knows what people very very rarely report any of that on on 5-MeO DMT and I actually have I've met someone who actually would microdose 5-MeO DMT um before meditating and he said it would put him in just the most utterly concentrated and and you know often blissful states for hours at a time for for longer than he could ever imagine meditating otherwise and I thought it was very interesting and so I think there's yeah I think there's huge potential to to combine these practices and I think it feels like we've only scratched the surface certainly in the kind of academic research setting like as you say we're still very much focused on the therapeutic potential of these medicines after these substances which I totally get is but I'm I'm not short of excitement for you know for the studies to start on the, the philosophical and kind of creative uh you know questions around these substances and the, and the combination of these practices i think there is one study that's possibly still ongoing at johns hopkins university when they when they're giving psilocybin to rabbis and priests and other religious leaders right and asking them how and seeing how does psychedelic experiences like relate to your mystical teachings if are you is that study been completed have you heard of that before or uh, i have heard of it i'm I'm not sure if it's complete, but I've read reports on it. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I'm I don't think it's complete and I'm very much looking forward to kind of either sort of reading the results or if it's already done then like really catching up on that. It's my understanding, mostly in the context of, of Buddhism, that like but the Buddhist teachers do do see some relationship between the psychedelic experience and like meditative experiences not to say they're the same or that there's that yeah there's the at least the potential to combine them in a way which is useful you know beneficial enlightening if we dare use that word yeah these are things that i would love the, the psychedelic society to you know to be able to do and and to be doing it sounds like that's uh it's, it's we're still we're maybe we're just kind of uh, moving beyond this phase of where people have been very scared to talk about psychedelics and how they're using psychedelics it might not even be that these substances need to be fully legal before we can actually just start doing kind of grassroots research projects on some of these questions, actually, as long as enough people are actually just simply comfortable to kind of admit to using them. That certainly seems to be the case in 
the west coast of the united states for example it's not like it's kind of weird if you haven't taken <laughs> if you're not sitting in an ayahuasca circle and sort of taking lsd there and i think in many circles and i'm getting so much out of actually growing my own psilocybin mushrooms mm -hmm. it's um it, it really feels like a <laughs> a god-given a dao-given right to, to to do this this feels like beyond the law and you know and i, I never um this is always for, for personal use i occasionally give like will gift small quantities to friends and family but i've never sold these the mushrooms that i've grown and it massively enhances the the, the depth of the experience and having built the relationship with the the substance the fungi over a period of like six weeks couple of months and actually seen it pop up seen it grow promotes the mystery of the experience that so this is this is truly like a living thing that i'm ingesting now mm. um, and it's yeah it's quite it's quite different to the sense of just kind of taking a kind of pharmaceutically prepared pill or that sense of that you're you're kind of like fusing your living being with the um yeah the the, the flesh the fungal flesh of another i guess the the kind of a magical mindset gives everything extraordinary significance the color the time of day you know what phase the moon is in all this kind of thing and even if someone doesn't really believe in any of that stuff during the psychedelic trip it kind of takes on a life of its own whether you believe in it or not and and i imagine the kind of set setting of having grown your own mushrooms has a large impact and does it feel like you're communing as it were with an entity there or does it just bring on the ecological connection and the connectedness of all things or or does it bring forward the sense of like okay there's a spirit behind this plant here and I think it's um, it's very helpful to be able to switch between different frames, like in relationship to the psychedelic experience. I think at, there are times at which, and, and I'm, when I'm speaking of this, I mean like including at times in the trip itself, that it can be very helpful to think about it in a kind of neuroscientific way. And okay, well, what's going on is that my 5-HT2A receptor is being activated and that's mm -hmm. like turned down my default mode network and that's allowing communication between like different parts of the brain resulting in this, this aesthetic phenomena or whatever. And also it can be really useful to think about it in terms of plant spirit or you know, mushroom spirit, if you like mushrooms aren't plants, um, that you're actually kind of in relationship you know, having a conversation with some kind of intelligent other to, to grow one's own mushrooms, you know, is, is to understand that this is not that far out of thing to say, like, of course, mushrooms are intelligent, like all, all plant, you know, all living things are in, intelligent and have, their, have a form of intelligence that they're capable of growing in a certain way to get what they need, whether that's, you know, light or water or food source or so on and so on. And which, which is actually not so different to most human beings. You know, we're just trying to grow in a certain way to get those same three things. <laughs> like, I know some people are a little bit like funny about the idea of like plant spirits, the idea of being kind of a conversation with an intelligent other, but growing one's own is a way, it has for me at least been a way of becoming just more comfortable with, <laughs> with seeing it like that. Yeah, I know. Um, there's been long debates around even the intelligence of animals and can they feel and do they think and but it's pretty clear that anyone who has a pet that they love that certainly the behavior seems to indicate that they have a very clear sense of the animal's intelligence and love yeah. and relationship and yeah so i imagine something similar to growing your own your own plants if you're forming that relationship where they're then going to drastically alter your consciousness <laughs> yeah yeah they, they it's funny they can't they can almost 
like I grow quite fond of my mushrooms. Like they almost do feel like pets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, but I guess I also have this sense of that they're, they're calling to be eaten. That's the kind of the end of their journey in the way that your, you know, your pet cat or your pet dog is, is definitely not calling to be eaten. With the experience you have now, and, and like I said, I know it's really hard in kind of to give very broad generalizations, but any words of caution or guidance that you might have given to yourself four years ago, or five, if you go back and say to you, whoever you were five years ago, like, hey, maybe consider this or think about that. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, grow your own. A lot of my negative experiences have been in connection with having too easy access to too, to too much or too high doses of a certain substance that is just vastly reduced if you're if you're growing your own like firstly you're likely only to be growing like small amounts relatively small amounts at a time and secondly even if you do happen to like you know end up with a lot at some point you're still you you've put the effort in you know what it's taken to grow all of that and you're not just gonna like take it or give it away irresponsibly like very probably you're gonna be like i grew this myself and it took me two months and like you know i had to spray them every day with water yeah. not you're not just gonna kind of dropping a tab here or a tab there and so and that's really about developing appropriate like reverence for the substance and on and, and the basis being the basis of sacred experience potentially transformational experience so my sense is that anyone who has the 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 dedication to grow and the patience to grow mushrooms over the course of a couple of months very pro very probably has the, the patience to be with whatever whatever comes up because as we've you know explored and spoken about like it isn't <laughs> always pleasurable it isn't always pretty it may it, they may well be difficult things that come up there but and for the duration of these two months that the mushrooms are growing even better if you start cultivating a regular meditation practice right. if you've been if you've been meditating every day for two months and whilst these mushrooms have been growing i then think you, you you're in a pretty good place to to have what might be like a first psychedelic experience and and very very probably you you know some you'd want to do that in the company of uh, of, a, of a friend um either taking a, a, like if it is a first time either taking like a lower dose or even no dose at all just to make sure that like everything's smooth it, equally you know many people do have their first psychedelic experiences in groups where the up where everyone is taking the same dose so like a you know potentially higher dose and mostly that's great as well but just to just think about it. and we should also add the disclaimer that like there are certain there are certain mental health conditions where it is very important to um, at, at minimum do like you know, really serious research into whether it's like taking psychedelics are a good idea you can find more about that uh, about more about that on our website mm -hmm. yeah they are not toys they are they're extremely powerful substances that have the capacity to significantly alter you know perception and one's sense of self and in an in an ongoing way as indeed we've explored so uh, it's yeah it's really important to, to be careful and to, to be patient and i wish that you know there's many occasions in which i had been more careful and more patient in, in relation to my use of psychedelic substances so in that sense don't make the same mistakes i did i've given you my advice there you know like <laughs> grow your own and, and and meditate whilst you're doing it yeah i know you to be 
kind of be fearless in your decision making and, and move forward and be spontaneous. So I think that carries a little bit more weight. But, but, but do take them. That's, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't have that part as well. You know, like, be, be careful, but, but do take it. Yeah. <laughs> take your time, but do take it. <laughs>